Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today, we discuss some emerging issues in family medicine, as well as the value that family physicians add to healthcare delivery. In a technological age where there is an emphasis on innovation and specialization, specialists such as family physicians are hardly inundated with respect or high regard. After all, it is the specialists who know way more. But as many of our specialist friends often jokingly remind us, they know way more about way less, referring, of course, to their far more limited and circumscribed fields in which they excel. Be that as it may, family medicine has traditionally been the backbone and the proverbial keeper that has held Western or Orthodox medicine together. Operating under all conditions and at all hours, these community trench workers, particularly in the rural areas, devote much of their waking life to reassuring, educating, rescuing, and saving their patients and community, often with little in the way of external support, and many times at the expense of their own families. Living with an enormous amount of uncertainty, given the scope, range, and depth of what is both expected and required of them, they develop the ability to operate and cope within the widest variety of health contexts, even and even mostly along generational lines. This uncanny so-called sixth sense, hardly a mystery, emerges naturally from a keen recognition of countless repetitive clinical, situational, and contextual patterns over time. Decade after decade, they show up, solve problems, and simply get things done. In my mind, family physicians are mostly the faithful, unobtrusive, and unsung Marines, which is a word I like to use, in the struggle against ill health and disease. Consequently, to at very least be fair, our gratitude and regard should and needs to be appropriately elevated. Our guest today embodies everything that I have already mentioned and more. A brief bio biography. Dr. Charles Helm has been a family physician in Tumblr Rich since 1992. He received his medical degree in South Africa at the University of Cape Town. He's a fellow of the Royal College of Family Physicians of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. In 2013, he received the Rural Long Service Award from the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada. And in 2016, received the Rural Family Physician of the Year Award from the British Columbia College of Family Physicians. He is an organizer of medical conferences with interests in polypharmacy, evolutionary biology, and health promotion to healthy lifestyle choices. He enjoys teaching medical residents and students. He's the author of nine books on Northern British Columbia. He's been an explorer in the Wolverine Nordic and Mountain Society, designing, building, and maintaining 100 kilometers of hiking trails. He was a founder of the Tumblr Ridge Museum Foundation in 2002. He developed a proposal that led to the creation of the Tumblr Ridge UNESCO Global Geopark in 2014 and was its first president. 
His paleontological research interest is in Pleistocene vertebrate tracks in South Africa, including hominin tracks and Cretaceous vertebrate tracks in Northern British Columbia. He's currently enrolled for his PhD in the Department of Geoscience, Nelson Mandela University, South Africa. Charles, welcome to Hellscape. So great to have you with us. You're a busy man. Thank you, Trevor. It's lovely to be with you. As I mentioned before, the podcast focuses on health resilience, epigenetics, self-help interventions in chronic mental and physical disease, especially chronic pain. We also cover emerging phenomena in medicine, particularly in medical service delivery. Now, Charles, the public is gaining more awareness of the growing phenomenon of polypharmacy, which we loosely can define as the use of multiple medications, usually prescription by any individual. Now, while there's some debate about what the cutoff is in terms of number, physicians and clinicians can more or less agree on what it is and what it's not, because in essence, or at its heart, it encompasses the unhelpful or sometimes harmful effects of some or several of the medications and their interactions uh, with each other even. It is important to point out that there is a danger that um, a patient being prescribed more and more medications, the interactions, the combined effects uh, can leave them feeling worse off, not only symptom-wise, but also regarding their overall condition and functionality. Please tell us about your experiences with this important and disquieting issue. Thank you, Trevor. Well, polypharmacy does not begin with the family physician intentionally committing uh, any patient to being on too many medications. It sneaks up on one. And it's to do with various things, possibly fragmentation of healthcare, different specialists, not knowing what the other one is doing, each prescribing um, a medication. It's to do with with cascades where one medication gets uh, started, causes a side effect. And rather than think of removing the first one, uh, one treats the, the side effect with the second one, which might cause a third side effect, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's called a cascade. Mm -hmm. So these things just happen. And patients often realize this is not good, what's happening to me. Um, I can think of one lady in her 60s who told me that her mother um, in her late 70s had been on 10 or 15 meds and she had vowed that, that she never wanted what happened to her mother to happen to her. Now, here she was in her late 60s and she was already on eight or something like that. And she's wondering, how, can, how did this happen to me? Um, is there anything that can be done? Is this absolutely necessary, essential? And can you help me with it? So people understand this is not good what's happening to them. But in the latter part of my medical career, I just realized this was almost an elephant in the room. People were talking about it, but there weren't that many actually doing something about it. I organized a bunch of medical conferences on this topic. And then almost out the blue, there was a funding opportunity that materialized, which my colleagues and I grabbed. Uh, with both hands. And essentially, um, well, I live in Tumblr Ridge, 2,500 people, an hour's drive from the next nearest community. We're in the foothills of the Rockies, beautiful and bucolic and remote. And that actually made it quite easy to isolate ourselves and try and do this because we uh, developed criteria. You had to be 65 or over. You had to be on five or more prescription meds. And there were 85 people in Little Tumblr Ridge that met those criteria. And over the course of a year, 
we saw 79 of them. There were five no-shows and um, five declined and, and, and one no-show, sorry. And uh, essentially these visits were a combination, myself and a wonderful pharmacist spending an hour with the patient and often a, a family member of the patient as well. And I'm just not aware of, uh, there might be other places in the world where something this detailed has been attempted. I'm not aware of them. But anyway, over a year, 79 people, we made 226 recommendations, of which three quarters were to stop or decrease. And that will tell you that one quarter were actually to start or increase medications. And our aim was not just willy-nilly to get everybody off their meds. It was really to get everybody on the right number of the right medications. And that is what we did. Um, Essentially, we were empowering, enabling people to decide for themselves, because there's some medications which you absolutely need to be on. There are others in a kind of gray area where, yeah, maybe, maybe not. And the patient's um, decision-making ability is a huge part of whether they should be on these or not, you know, understanding risks and benefits. And these things take a lot of time. That's why we needed an hour. But the results were astonishing to me. The level of gratitude that these patients expressed towards us, they knew we were doing something good for them. Um, the amount of difference we made in people's lives, uh, ironic, because here I was reversing some of the uh, medications that I'd initially prescribed years ago. Yeah. Um, or that other colleagues had prescribed. So you're actually reversing colleagues' decisions and making a wonderful difference, uh, a positive difference in people's lives. And I went on record as saying in my medical career of 40 plus years, this was the most fulfilling work that I'd ever done. There were challenges. If you tell somebody, we think you can come off this medication and they say to you, well, but my family docs for the last two, three decades have told me I need to be on this, how can this be? That's a challenging question to try to answer. And there's also provider hesitancy because if you stop something and a week or two later, something bad happens to the patient, even though these two events, one tends to feel, could I have caused this? Could I have done harm? And we tend as family docs often to be defensive and worried about getting sued and worried about things going wrong and being blamed for things. And we always try not to do any harm. And then mm -hmm. maybe it's the concept that by stopping something, could we be doing harm? So it actually becomes easier just to carry on with the status quo, even though over time that can become a, a, a pretty unfortunate decision. Yeah. And, and that's that's one of the big problems, of course, is is not knowing. And you 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 had the the um, luxury, well, I wouldn't say luxury, but the privilege of time. And this is such an important point that to do things properly in medicine, uh, certain complex categories, we we need time. And uh, generally, if you look at the the average appointment time with a patient, this is often woefully inadequate. So that's uh, that's most interesting, Charles. Um, did do, with your um, conversations you had with the other physicians and the pharmacist, was there any sort of consensus on the prevalence that this might be, uh, say, in Western countries? Sort of how common is this among? I know it's more common among the aged because they tend to be on more drugs as well. Of course, is there any kind of consensus or 
is it sort of up in the air what the prevalence is? Well, I, I think it's actually alarmingly common. It is the elephant in the room. And it, it, it is commoner in seniors. Um, they've had longer to accumulate medication. Yes. For one <laughs> sure. But um, I, I don't know. I, um, my ideal is as people age, they actually end up on less rather than more because the things that might have worked for them and worked well with it when they were in their 50s and early 60s, for example. As one gets older, one doesn't necessarily tolerate things better. Often one tolerates things worse. So my ideal is as you get older, you go on less and less and less. Yes. And one of the problems is that there's no real incentive for pharmacists to take an active interest in this. You know, our pharmacist here in Tumblr Ridge is an exception. She just says, no, what I want is healthy people. The number of prescriptions that I fill is not what it's about. Even though, you know, she is incentivized to mm -hmm. fill as many prescriptions as possible from a financial perspective, it doesn't make sense. And so you need really special people like her um, on side in, in, in trying to do something like this. Absolutely. No, <clears throat> I totally agree with that. Now, at this point, I just want to make this one remark, please. That now, for the listeners, it's the, obviously the last thing we want to do is give the impression that anyone on several medication is somehow at risk for something bad. This needs to be determined by an appropriately trained clinician. We know, for example, that moderate to severe high blood pressure can sometimes require three or even four medications in order to simply control it adequately. Um, now, you have mentioned that, um, I mean, I know quite a bit about your background, Charles. So when you describe this as a highlight of your career, then it's, it's major impact we're talking about, um, you know. Uh, so it, it, it is amazing you had that experience. While you were talking, I also thought of you know, it's the type of thing that would be excellent to expose junior, newly qualified physicians, but then it would also not be very fair because they do not have the knowledge or experience base. But um, it certainly would be helpful if this, I, I know it wasn't really taught, not too much was said about polypharmacy. I mean, we had too many, too many basic things to learn, I guess. Um, so what was the what would what were there any other lessons other than it's it's rewarding and a lot of people do need this intervention were there any insights into how to deal with this problem on scale because you had a year uh, yeah and i know these cases are tricky right and basically should be done in a hospital setting or some kind of nursing care setting. Um, but is there any, uh, were any insights, did any insights come out as to how one could ramp this up at a sort of larger community level? Right. We didn't admit anybody. In the ideal oh, world, okay. I don't want to do admissions. Uh, we got by with not ad admitting anybody. And uh, there, there are a number of things. You know, firstly, the, just the burden of, you know, four times a day, often in some elderly people, and a cocktail 
cocktails and it, at, in the morning it's this and in the evening it's that and mixtures you know Trevor I think you and I would struggle to follow th that sort of advice yes. and I have no Absolutely. idea how these people can actually manage it so th that's that that's one thing but um we we actually gave a, a webinar and there was a a lovely cardiologist from Victoria saying well does this mean that all my you know, severe heart failure patients are going to be in the emergency room now with florid heart failure. And, and the answer was, you know, we absolutely recognize that to treat heart failure, cardiologists with great forethought develop a cocktail of three or four, sometimes five medications. And mm -hmm. we never dream of tampering with that. Yes. Whereas with type 2 diabetes, for example, people also end up on four or five or six. And there we had great confidence in reviewing lifestyle things with patients and managing to get them off and often managing to get them off their insulin and onto healthier choices because insulin makes people hungry and overweight and it makes the diabetes harder to control. So you get into a, a horrible, vicious cycle uh, with diabetes. But one of the, the things was just being willing to go slowly. Um, so sedatives, benzodiazepines, for example, really not a great idea in the elderly, but one often needs a year or even more very, mm. very slowly to get people off their medications. Um, the PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, I just think that's the ideal medication if you're a drug company and you want somebody on this forever, you've got the ideal drug because you have heartburn or dyspepsia or something going on in the beginning. And it's like a miracle. It shuts down your acid completely and you feel so much better. And then if ever you on your own just say, well, let me just stop taking it for a few days. You're going to get this horrendous rebound heartburn. And you, the lesson you take from it is I definitely need it. I can't stop it. And you need someone to explain to you that these PPIs, these medications, in most cases, are designed for short-term use, a couple mm -hmm. of weeks, maybe a month or two, not long-term. But it's just incredibly prevalent how people end up on these drugs for two, three, four years or a lifetime. Significant harms associated with these drugs long-term. And patients need this advice that, yeah, there's that rebound thing. So we've got to taper you gently over a period of a few months, and then you can be off these things. Um, but left to their own devices, it's extremely unlikely that our patients are going to come to that realization on their own. Um, some of the other ones one can stop quite quickly. Some of the diabetic meds, the, the non-steroidals like ibuprofen. Um, one of the the really worrisome things is I can think of a lady who was in her 70s and her, she thought she was getting dementia. Her family thought she was getting dementia. It was a drug that I had prescribed when she was in her 50s or 60s and it worked very well, amitriptyline, with anticholinergic side effects. And what had worked well for her in her 50s and 60s was causing problems for her as she was in her 70s and getting into her late 70s stopping the amitriptyline within a week or two, she was back to her old self. She was immensely grateful. Family were just, I, I cannot tell you how relieved a family yeah. is to know that what you thought was dementia in a loved one absolutely turns out to be a drug side effect. And it's that simple. And I mean, the other drugs, Trevor, that you will be very familiar with in your chronic pain work, like gabapentin, you know, right. supposedly one can stop it fairly quickly. But you just have to see a couple of cases where 
somebody ends with, up with the psychosis from stopping gabapentin. Yeah. And we said, yeah. well, why, why do it in a hurry? Let's just do it slowly. Right. There's no advantage to doing it just instantaneously, really, because and there are risks. Well, my go-to phrase is, uh, we learned this at medical school, of course, is with the elderly, you're starting a medication, start low and go slow. Um, because that's absolutely, I mean, the metabolism of the drug and so forth, uh, it's, it's changed. And also when the drugs are, are uh, approved, there's, I think the assumption amongst lay people that it's safe for an indefinite time. Well, it's not tested for indefinite use. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I mean, a lot of sort of the cardiovascular drug, diabetes and stuff, you use it a long time. But as you say, you can run into problems where it needs to be reviewed. Maybe you get a different medication for that or not. Uh, it's this whole dance that we do between um, benefit and risk ratio. Uh, that most drugs, you know, people often will say if they're very anxious, this medication want to give um, you give me are there side effects? And you say yes, because that's the answer to that question for most drugs. But it's that balance that has to, and it's dynamic. It doesn't stay if you tolerate something at one point, it, you may not tolerate it in ten or twenty or thirty years. So that in, in the city, I just want to add, just in case I gave the impression that this should only be done in a hospital setting, it's very often to get the initial buy-in in a city setting, they will admit the person for a few days to, to, to you know, and, and, and take off the ones that they think, uh, taper the drugs they feel are most badly needed to be tapered so that the person has can have monitoring and has the confidence of buying into the program. Because as you mentioned, you know, they've been on a long time and like, so why was I given this? There, there are user objections or patient objections. So it was a very tough, I can imagine, it was a very tough task your team had. Uh, this is not easy work, not at yeah. all. And, and the other thing, Trevor, is we are all individuals and we react differently to things. And so... What goes wrong with one person doesn't necessarily go wrong with the next one. I can think of, you know, most, most of us tolerate statins with no problem. The, the cholesterol-lowering drugs that are supposed to decrease one's risk of you know, heart attack and stroke, especially if one's already had an event. Mm -hmm. But we had, and, and one knows that occasionally statins can cause um, muscle pains and, and, and just horrible pains. And we had one case, a gentleman in his 80s looking after a very sick wife. Um, 10 years plus of um, shoulder pain, intractable, horrendous shoulder pain. He'd had one shoulder replaced, then he'd had a rotator cuff surgery on the other shoulder, just as bad as ever. Nothing had ever helped. And we just said to him, why don't we just see what happens if we stop your statins for a few weeks and what's going to happen? And within a week, he was back and he said, I can't believe it, my pain. I, I couldn't brush my teeth. Now I can lift my toothbrush. Um, and what's more, a couple of weeks later, he was pushing weights again. He's never looked back. And he was in his 80s and he'd had, you know, re reasons to be on statins. Absolutely. But the evidence as one gets older in the, into one's 80s and 90s is just not great as it would yeah. be for someone much younger. And there, I know it's one anecdote, but you, you see things like that and you realize we are all different. 
you know, I, I could be on a statin and I wouldn't have that reaction, but, but he did. And others yeah. might say, well, you stopped the drug, he got better, it might not be connected, fair enough, but he'd had his pain for 10, 20 years. And all of a sudden something, you take away a drug, you know, it, it's suggestive, it's, it's pretty robust and suggestive. Yeah, but you know, they often use the revert, lay people often um, will say, you know, the only thing was changed is they removed this drug and I got that. So it's timeously uh, related, but it may not be causal. We know it's quite a problem proving causality, right? It's a whole another ball game. Um, so the, the, the difficulty as well is if there is some sort of unrelated event that is not really plausible from the removal of a drug, one can meet resistance with the patient saying, well, that's the only thing that's changed. I don't even change my breakfast and my lunch routine and so on. Very interesting. So, you know, staying on this theme of quote unquote too much or overload, there are of course other problems that you're very well aware of in family medicine that we didn't hear too much about a decade or two ago, such as the over investigation, over diagnosis as well as over-treatment. Um, it all basically under, comes under the banner of medicalization or over-medicalization. What are your feelings on these, Charles? Well, my feelings are yes to all of the above. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the short answer. <laughs> yeah, the over-investigation, I mean, apart from anything else, there's the cost to the system. And we all know, you know, what a burden, you know, yeah. what, what challenges, funding healthcare involves and over investigation is a, it's very expensive to order tests and you know i actually got into trouble from the administrator here about 10 years ago i was told i was not ordering enough tests to justify having a lab tech here in tumbler ridge I, I must mend my ways and i must order more tests and i said sorry i'm ordering what's necessary you know and the, the bottom line is you only order a test if you're going to act on the results. You don't, mm -hmm. ordering a test is not a fishing expedition. No. We, let's do a bunch of tests and see what we pick up. That is terrible because the things you pick up might be of no relevance whatsoever to the patient, even though they seem to be abnormal. And then you've created anxiety and you've created a vicious cycle of needing to do more tests to investigate these things, which are, you know, incidental findings. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, what does normal and abnormal mean? You know, there's a normal range. What a normal range, and you want to be in the normal range, but that means the normal range means within two standard deviations of the right. mean. In other words, the 3% of normal people with normal, what for them is a normal result, are going to be outside the range. So if you do 100 tests, um, three of the abnormals, three abnormals will be actually normal, but they just happen to be outside the normal range. And now you're making them worried. So the whole invest over investigation thing is, is very real. Overdiagnosis, I mean, I'm so happy to see there's a major conference on this coming up in Calgary soon. It's getting more and more attention. It just, it makes us family doctors look smart because we can give a diagnosis and a name to everything, but we create this thing, which is called the worried well. You know, people are well, mm -hmm. now we've labeled them with something and now they're worried. And the over-treatment, you know, if I look back on my career, um, what could I do differently? I always, you know, I, we had wonderful teachers. Um, I always, you always try and do the best you can, but 
I realized, you know, my some of my interpretations and following of guidelines was not ideal in retrospect. I was numbers focused, you know, blood pressure, you got a target. Right. With diabetes, you got an HbA1c less than seven, which is your target. And if I if I had my life over again, I would say I'm I'm, I'm dealing with patients and individual people with individual problems, and the guidelines are not relating to them specifically. The guidelines are giving me numbers. Right. I, I focus too much on the numbers, and um, the one thing I will, you know, my the revelation for me in latter years was we were not taught evolutionary biology in medical school or hardly at all since then. It's coming in a little bit now, but still not enough. And when I read the book um, by Daniel Lieberman, The Story of the Human Body, it's like the scales fell from my eyes. Everything suddenly made sense. And the risk, as we said, is overdiagnosis. But as a result of understanding evolutionary biology and all these mismatched diseases. We've got paleolithic bodies, and, and, um, but we're living in a high-tech world, which we struggle to cope with. And then possibly the most prevalent disorder is nature deficit disorder. We divorced ourselves from the natural world, but now we're medicalizing that as well. So that's an irony there too. Yes. And the, the important point also to make for our listeners, I, I think, is that um, you know, with the overdiagnosis, it's making people uh, people worry uh, by identifying problems that were probably never going to cause much harm, or even medicalizing ordinary life experiences by expanding the definition, such as who hasn't had problems from time to time with focus, sleep, or sadness without it being major depression, major insomnia, or you know, some sort of attention deficit. You can be overworked. You can just be and haven't had a holiday for a long time, a lot on your plate. And in my experience, I think about one in four people at least, uh, and I'm not measuring it by any scale. It's an impression in my practice. We're, we're running at fairly high anxiety levels, trying to keep up with the literature. Is coffee good? Is coffee bad? And in that group especially, we actually can cause disease. And, uh, you know, overdiagnosis now is actually one of the most harmful and costly problems in, in healthcare. So it certainly can't be overemphasized. I mean, obviously, we want to know what's wrong, but we can medicalize. I see this in chronic pain all the time, by the way. If, uh, 30 years after the fact, if their neck starts getting painful, then it's the spread of the pain. Whereas if they speak to their friends of the same age group, they'll say, oh, gee, I'm, half the time I wake up with a sore neck and it goes within 30 minutes. I don't know what it is. Kind of thing, you know. Let it, I'm not saying people shouldn't go to their physician if they are concerned, but it's, it's taken on a whole new uh, um, level, you know. And then, of course, we've got the overdetection, you know, the over-investigation, um, and uh, same same thing, leading to overdiagnosis. It's it's good to hear that there's more uh, attention being paid uh, in in um, in ongoing teaching conferences and that. Uh, it's time for a quick uh, brief commercial break. 
Uh, you're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. I'm speaking to Dr. Charles Helm. We'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at TrevorCampbellMD.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to Healthscape. Um, to Healthscape. Um, this is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. I'm speaking with Dr. Charles Hull. So where did we leave off? Um, okay, so the, is this problem of too much uh, over-diagnosis, over-medicalization, uh, over-definition, over-investigation? Uh, but it's good that there's awareness among physicians uh, is now increasing to the point where we ask the question before we do something um, because people can, for example, with an MRI, Charles, I mean, at 50 or 60, there's going to be a lot of commentary on what is seen, the imaging, and people will say, well, how do I know that's not that where it is, not the cause of, a, of my problem? And it might even be in a different area of the, of the spine, uh, and, and it's not related. One has to often so often explain, well, this is a normal MRI for somebody in your age category, right? Um, Charles, I'd like to, uh, at this point, to loop back to the beginning of the episode where I spoke of the role of the family physician. Now, we're at a time where we read everywhere that family practice is at, under threat. Um, changes are accelerating. Some might even say they're approaching the rapid fire change. Um, yet we know that as populations age, there is a need for 
ongoing or what we call longitudinal care rather than the episodic care, going to a walking clinic. Now, let me just stop there and say, walking clinics do amazing work as well, and they fill an important, fulfill an important role in our system. But we have to remember that episodic care clinicians see the disease snapshot, how one is on that particular day. While family physicians obviously get to see and deal with the entire health movie, so to speak. And this is why a good referral letter from a family physician is always greatly valued by a specialist or an ER physician. So I believe that family physicians are unique in this situation. And even if it becomes a bigger team approach, which could be a very good thing, but they almost indispensable in that way. Would you agree? Well, yes, and there's the, the gatekeeper role, but yeah. uh, Trevor, you touched on longitudinal care. I mean, that's just a, a passion uh, of mine. And the example I give there, um, I walked into my examining room and there was an 80-year-old lady there. Um, she had been to two different emergency rooms in the two preceding days, and she'd seen two extremely competent colleagues, emergency room physicians, but she had vague symptoms in, in her legs, which were difficult for her to articulate and difficult to work out. But I walked into that room and I just, like I've known this lady for a couple of decades. I know she's a very high functioning 80 year old. And I walked into the room and I said, my goodness, what's the matter? What, what's the trouble? Because you, it's that sixth sense that you were talking about earlier. Don't ask me how you know or why you know, but you know there's something major and catastrophic going on here. And how can I help this patient? And this is not going to be a, a five-minute consult. This is going to, we've got to work it out here and get, get right to the root of the problem. And um, the, 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 the quick summary is that she had an abdominal aortic aneurysm, a big one, which had begun to leak and which was ready to pop. And this was causing her symptoms at a distant part of her body in her legs. And she could not articulate this well, but you had to sit down with her knowing there was something major wrong and just patience. As you said, it takes time sometimes. Anyway, about five hours later, she was in Vancouver having a 13-hour operation by a vascular surgeon and has done very well. But I would always provide, I would hope that she would come in when I was teaching medical students and residents. And I would just say here is an example of longitudinal care and its benefits. I cannot tell you why I knew, and but I knew. And we worked it out. And, you know, this is a, 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 a case in point. But the other thing with long, longitudinal care, I think you touched on it too, is generations, you know, being able to watch the kids that you delivered grow up and become teenagers and then have their own kids and get married and, and so on. I mean, that's just an immense privilege. But... Mm -hmm. You also touched on the fact that things are not getting easier, they're getting more complex. And I think you used rapid fire. I just think of it, you know, you're rafting down a, a, a river and in the, in, the, in the past, it was a pretty placid river and now and then a rapid. And, you know, in the last few years, it's becoming more and more, every now and then there's a waterfall. And uh, now the rapids are sort of becoming continuous and you're wondering, well, what, where are we heading into a canyon with something unnavigable. Um, so it, it is worrisome, you know, family medicine is essentially at risk. 
Yeah, no, no, definitely. And then we've got the other thing with the administrative, the paperwork that balloons. And unlike in the legal profession, a lot of the that work after hours, done usually after office hours, is not embursed. Um, so it, it is tough. I just want to go back for a minute, just for our readers, an aneurysm. Um, Dr. Helm spoke about a, an aortic aneurysm. That's a kind of weakening in the wall of an artery uh, and, and it balloons out. So it, it's under threat of bursting. And obviously the aorta is pretty major vessel, like the major vessel, right? Um, yeah, no, so to get, to get back to the, the, it's definitely, you see, the other thing is that studies have shown, as you know, Charles, you'll know this well, that um, people who have a trusted family physician, uh, in other words, a favorable relationship and they, they're happy with the service and so forth, and, and that's the majority because one really struggles to find the, uh, them. It's a rare commodity, if I can use that word. But um, they, they, they have better health outcomes. They visit the ER less often. They generally rate the healthcare system better than their counterparts, whatever country they're in. I don't know. I can't name you all the countries where this particular type of study was done. But there are major benefits, and yet the, it is definitely becoming, uh, I think, inimical, inimical unfriendly uh, environmentally to the practitioners, and burnout is a major, a major problem. Which brings me to my next question. Um, what first attracted you to a career in family medicine, and you went to the added complexity you know, we think of rural areas in terms of less complex, but from a physician's point of view, increased load, less support, less teaching and so forth um, in a rural community. So what are perhaps the two most important things, one or two, that you have learned through your career choice? And these are life lessons. They don't have to be medical lessons that you perhaps don't believe you would have learned as thoroughly or perhaps as definitively in another situation that you could have chosen? Yeah, interesting questions. Just the, the opportunity to be part of the service profession is incredible. I mean, it's always been incredible, been a privilege and the opportunity to engage in teamwork with a dedicated you know, colleagues and, and professionals has been, th th those have just been incredible um, opportunities. And with that goes just the notion of being in it for the long haul. There is so much, you know, we're almost encouraged, we're incentivized to move on and try something different and try something new and mm -hmm. be in one place for a year or two and then try something exciting. Um, you're almost fighting against the current where you say, no, I'm going to stay here because this is where I want to be and I'm going to be in it for the long haul. So I've been in Tumbler Ridge for 30 plus years. Um, I can hike out of my back door onto these hiking trails. Um, I've been on call one and two or one and three evenings and you know, days for most of that time. But there's the power of reframing. Um, because one had to be on call that often, the calls are not necessarily that heavy, but they're just frequent <laughs> almost all the time. Because of that, I was able to write books. I don't think I would have written nine books on this region if it had not been for the burden of being on call. So good things come from bad things. And yes. 
You know, the other thing with family medicine, I remember I had a guidance counselor when I was at high school and he persuaded me the family medicine and in, in fact, rural family medicine was what I wanted to do. And he said, there are very few professions where every day of your life, you're going to have something that challenges you intellectually, is interesting, is fascinating. Medicine will give you that. And other professions might become more humdrum over time. So I took that, I learned from that, and I'm happy to say that I was able to put it into practice. But, you know, at the end of it, um, one chance, one life, we, we're only given one life, um, seize the day, carpe diem, and keep the flag flying at the end of your life, look in the mirror, and hopefully you, you and your family can say you did your best, but seize the day was my maxim. And, and you certainly did that. I mean, a, a wonderful achievement. In fact, you know, just the, listening to you talk, it's, it sounds like your interests, although they are a lot of work and without doubt, they must be very interesting. Um, it was almost an antidote to burnout because one in one call, you know, being on call at night, we know, all know the, the drawbacks of shift work and, and odd hours and sleep interference and so forth. You know, one in two, one in three over years is 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 tough. I mean, you know, in your twenties and thirties, and it's okay, and then you get to fifty, it's not. You know, it's it's heavy duty, and then it just kind of goes, gets more difficult from from there. Now, um, but thank you for that. I think that's a wonderful way to be able to be so. Uh, resolute you you your carpe diem to keep that going for decades is a is a great inspiration even to me at this age uh that i mean that's staying power and uh yeah you know i salute you for that um i want to touch on something that at first glance may have very little to do with medicine but your dinosaur uh find for one of a better term, and I'm sure I'm using it incorrectly, related discovery is fascinated. And you and your son were involved, I believe. Uh, but it speaks eloquently, um, it, it eloquently speaks volumes about you as a person. Please tell us more about you and your son's historic find. Well, thanks, Trevor. I mean, this goes back to 2000 when my son was eight years old and he and a friend who was 11 were tubing down a creek uh, a kilometer or two from town and they fell off their tube and they walked back up the bank and they found dinosaur tracks and they knew immediately what they had found. And these were the first from this area to be described. And I try to help them get in touch with uh, paleontologists and experts, etc. And one thing led to another. It led to the creation of a museum here. It led to the creation of a UNESCO Global Geopark. And it led to a fascination with um, fossil tracks and tracking uh, for myself. And it, is, it has been an antidote. It's been um, something completely different to keep keep me focused but it's also in a strange way enhanced my appreciation of you know what our situation is on this planet and how best we can cope with it which includes being a good trying to be a good doctor but mm -hmm. in 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 summary um we find a lot of dinosaur tracks and most recently tracks of giant crocodiles in uh, here up in northeastern british columbia these we just recently published on the crocodiles up to 12 meters long so we got their tracks and swim traces 
you learn all sorts of interesting things. This was at the level of the Arctic Circle at the time. So these crocs were spending up to five months a year in complete darkness. But you're going to say, why aren't there crocs now? Well, it was a lot warmer then, and there were no ice caps. And so it puts global warming that we're worried about now into perspective. And then I also realized when I would go back to South Africa, where I, I grew up, um, that the area I grew up in was where hominins and our human ancestors find they found their feet, as it were. And there were these multiple, multiple track sites there that nobody was really paying attention to. And in the process, we found track sites, the, the oldest track sites of our species, about 145,000 years um, ago, uh, of Homo sapiens. And we also unexpectedly realized that, well, if they could make footprints and leave tracks and we could interpret their tracks, then other stuff they were doing, we could also find and interpret. And they were making these beautiful patterns in the sand and you know, Trevor, if you and I go to the beach at West Coast, uh, on, 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 um, on the West Coast in a national park, and what do people do there? They build sandcastles. They love it. And that's an atavistic um, experience. We know when mm -hmm. we're building sandcastles that there's something meaningful about it. And we found that 130,000 years ago, people were building sandcastles on the beach and making images of other animals, for example. And we never expected to find that. But what that shows us is that way back then, they were probably just as smart as we are, or stupid as we are, however we want to look at that. And they were probably as happy as we are, you know, with all our technological advances, we are not necessarily happy. We've spoken about the stress that people have in coping with things and all the challenges we have in our lives and our complex lives. And maybe simpler, um, you know, the simple things we were certainly in those days very connected with our environment. They did not suffer from nature deficit disorder, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then also just on that coastline, we see evidence where the, the sea levels were, you know, 125,000 years ago, they were seven meters higher than now. 400,000 years ago, they were 13 meters higher than now. And you realize that when sea levels rise, um, the evidence we see there is it becomes exponential. It's like a vicious cycle. And when they start rising, they rise faster and faster and faster. And in those days, the people in, in one lifetime, they would have noticed the coastline moving, but they had no infrastructure. They could simply move. They were adaptable. And the problem for us is all our cities are on the coastline. Uh, most yeah. of us cities in the world are on the coastline and we've got this massive infrastructure and how does everybody move inland? It's just unthinkable. So having a, a deep time, a paleontological perspective for me has been, been wonderful because you see these things in context and you realize we do have a lot to worry about. Um, firstly, in terms of, you know, the, the future of medicine and family medicine, but also the future of the planet. And I found the paleo connection has really enriched how, how I look at these things. That's, that's wonderful, the connections you're able to make. Um, you know, while you were speaking about sandcastles and stuff, I mean, the fame of celebrated uh, playwright Adolf Fugard in one of his plays, what we're trying to say in our life is that people are living here. That's the kind of sometimes groan we offer, but what, that's the statement we try to make. And, um, and we're still grappling with that because we, there's a feeling, I mean, 
there's no secret at the moment. People feel we on we we on shaky soil at the moment. These are difficult times for a variety of reasons that we're all very familiar with. Um, but this is most fascinating. So one one question is, and it may be a bit personal. You can answer it in one sentence if you like. So where does Dr. Helm go from here? I, I, I can, obviously, you'll get your PhD. I can't see you, uh, you know, staring on the porch with coffee or, or something. So can you tell us briefly uh, a further plan or direction that you may take? Well, you know, I think that the long haul continues. You know, I, I, I feel so privileged to be able to say, I'm living where I want to live and I'm happy where I am. In, in fact, <laughs> after I'd been in Tumblr Ridge for about five or six years, you know, the, 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 the normal process was a, a, a doc would come here from South Africa or wherever and would be here for a couple of years and then would move to Vancouver area, the lower mainland, et cetera. And then people realized after six years, I was still here. And the rumor started going around that, I must have failed some exams or I must be in trouble with the <laughs> physicians and surgeons. Something's gone wrong. I'm being punished for being here. And they, they really struggle to understand that I'm here because this is where my wife and I want to be. We are fulfilled. We can't imagine a nicer place in the world to be. And now it's the same as I'm approaching retirement. No plans to move. But so many other people finish their, their working lives here. And then they want to move to where they think the grass is greener without really appreciating the things that make rural um, life so, so special. So I, all I can see in the future, uh, no major developments, no major moves, but more of the same. Just we're, mm. you've got to know when you're on a good wicket, when you, you just want to stick there when things are going okay. And we just feel immensely privileged to be where we are. And not everybody can say that. There's so much discontent in the world and we look at, you just have to watch the news every evening nowadays yeah. to see what trouble people get into and um, right. be grateful for what you've got. Absolutely. Well, having visited there before when I lectured, I think it is uh, also as more insight with age, of course, but uh, it's, it's a wonderful setup there. It is indeed a beautiful part of the country and uh, unspoiled and, um, yeah, so you certainly have, your life has been testament to the fact that people are living here. And uh, all I want to say is, um, Charles, it's been wonderful having you here. Um, your life has been fully and passionately lived. And I'm sure that extends to your whole family. And that's a shining example for all of us, I think, um, you know, it's funny that I don't want to harp on times being tough, but what it does often lead to when you go beyond the concern is self-reflection. And um, I must say during these times, I've, I've felt the need to do a self-audit. And um, it's amazing what comes up. As you say, being on call often allowed you to write books. And sometimes it takes a serial setbacks and adversity to get to the gold. So uh, before I start sermonizing, <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much for agreeing to appear, Charles. It's been absolutely wonderful, as it always is, um, to connect with you. And um, I wish you the very best. 
and hopefully we'll have you back on the show at some time if you would come on some maybe something on evolutionary uh, biology because although it sounds very lofty to a lot of people who are not in the medical profession or, or in the science professions it is fundamental to how things arise and our interventions and so on thank you again thank you trevor a huge privilege to be on your show thank you so much uh, you're very kind. Uh, this is Dr. Trevor Campbell from Healthscape signing off. Um, goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.